This week, just when you thought our federal parliament couldn't get any crazier, this week's sittings dominated by claims of sexual assault and the politicisation and weaponisation of them. Former Green Senator Lydia Thorpe telling the Senate she was assaulted by numerous men at parliament. Former Liberal Senator Amanda Stoker with her own tale of assault and a Liberal Senator being stood aside because of those allegations. We'll do the go slow and explain the whole thing for you. Donald Trump in court and more serious matters as we ask, what is the future vision for our country? G'day and welcome to episode 210 of The Other Side Australia. I'm Damien Curry, and this is your weekly shortcut summary of the news of the week for the weekend starting Friday night, June 16, 2023, here on ADH TV. This is the show where we take things a little slower and go a little deeper and try to explain the news more clearly for you so you can catch up in under an hour of your busy time each week. Things move fast some weeks, and this week, boy, it was no exception. So let's go. We can't start this week's show without acknowledging some of the saddest news in a generation for our country. 10 young wedding guests killed and 25 others injured after a horrific bus crash in the Hunter Valley in New South Wales. There isn't any Aussie who can't imagine the horror of what's supposed to be one of the happiest days in people's lives ending like this. Our hearts go out to the families and friends of the victims and especially to the young couple whose happiest day became their worst. Life really doesn't get much crueler than that, does it? And it's why we need more than just materialism in our lives, I think. Here's what Alan Jones had to say on Tuesday night here on ADH. This is the seventh worst bus tragedy in Australian history. The worst disaster of this type in Australia since 1994, when 12 people died after a coach carrying war widows rolled at Boondall in Brisbane. It is important for young people in particular, and I've been stressing this today to young people to whom I've spoken, to remember that two things on the road are potentially fatal, inexperience and speed. And now people are dead, others maimed and badly injured, and hundreds if not thousands indirectly affected mourning avoidable deaths. Our thoughts are also with the little Hunter Valley town of Singleton that I know so well, where early on Monday morning, word was filtering through that several of their own were dead and others were badly injured. It rocks us all, but it's going to rock this community and many families for a long time to come. A wedding is a momentous celebration, isn't it, of life and love, yet many have died and others are badly injured. Leaders have an obligation to remind the nation that vehicles of any kind are powerful tools and they must be used responsibly. It's more than a truism born out here that speed kills and the tragedy and the sadness endure. Well, Schoolies Week was on this week. Sorry, I mean, federal parliament sat this week. Always a treat. Now, I wasn't planning on saying much about the Brittany Higgins story and all that stuff this week, given we dedicated half an hour to explaining it all last week, except to say that the tentacles continue to grow in this whole saga. 
But then Lydia Thorpe dropped her bombshell Wednesday and Peter Dutton dropped another one Thursday and then Amanda Stoker Thursday night. So we're going to try and help you understand it all. I don't know how any normal Aussie can keep up with it. I work on this show and I find it hard enough. But never fear, that's what The Other Side Australia is all about. Before we get into the latest chapter in the weird and troubling personal lives of our political class, I do need to correct an error that we made in last week's show. I'll always correct errors we make, as we'll sometimes make them given how much information we're working through each week. But I said last week that Brittany Higgins' interview with The Project in February 2021 was three months before the election. It was, of course, 15 months before the election, because the election was in 2022. So apologies for that. The years just seem to go so fast these days. Anyway, to Lydia Thorpe in a moment, but let's do our catch up chronologically from last weekend where we left off. And if you haven't read the Weekend Australians piece on Fiona Brown last Saturday, you really should. Now, Fiona Brown was the chief of staff in the office of Defence Minister Linda Reynolds. She's the one that Brittany Higgins and Bruce Learman reported to. She's their boss. She was slammed by Higgins in the project's interview back in 2021. Higgins said she didn't handle the situation well at the time of the alleged rape. And that is basically what the Labor attack dogs ran with in their campaign to politically weaponize the case and use it to attack ScoMo and the Liberals, you'll remember. It was a massive narrative that they were pushing in the election campaign, that ScoMo and the Libs had a women problem. All of our political class has a problem with its behavior in this uh, particular sense, not just one party or another. But Fiona Brown has broken her self-imposed silence after years of personal torment. And she told The Australian that Higgins had earlier praised the way that she looked after her and handled the case. And the first thing that she knew that Higgins had any issues at all was two years later when she sat and watched mortified as Higgins named her four times in the project interview. As I said, it's really worth reading last Saturday's main story in The Australian on Fiona Brown. If you haven't already, it's an eye opener. Now, as part of taking care of Ms Higgins, instead of firing her for misconduct, as they did with Bruce Learman, the Liberals moved Ms Higgins to another department. And I've heard they even made sure it was a female minister so that she'd feel completely safe. They sent her to the office of Michaelia Cash. Senator Cash appeared on ADH TV this week. She spoke to Alan Jones about the fact that she and Linda Reynolds did do everything they could to support Brittany Higgins. Well, Alan, as you know, both Linda and I gave evidence under oath in a court of law. And our statements are very, very clear. But what we are now seeing coming out by way of the evidence again is that this was weaponised by Labor deliberately at the time and they hounded Linda Reynolds and if they didn't like her answer they continued to hound Linda Reynolds mm -hmm. but what has also come out now in relation to the support that the Reynolds office was provided yes. is of course the email from Lauren Barron's I've got it in front of me dated Friday the 29th of March 2019 now Lauren Barron's as you know was from the Department of Finance and there's a key line in here this is what Lauren Barron says, back to Linda Reynolds, then Chief of Staff. I consider that the steps you have taken are appropriate, taking into account guidance material available, including 
from the Human Rights Commission. So that is the evidence that the Department of Finance provided to Linda Reynolds, then mm. Chief of Staff. Mm. I consider that the steps you have taken are appropriate. Right. Well, the Chief of Staff was lent to Linda Reynolds' office from the Prime Minister's office, Correct. Fiona Brown, yep. an outstanding woman who's just been buried. I mean, the text that I've read indicate very warm exchanges between Higgins and Linda Reynolds. None of that was acknowledged in the interview that went to air in February 21. Fiona Brown's notes are impeccable in detail, showing the care and support that Higgins was offered in the days following the alleged incident. Channel 10 was informed about the level of care and support by Fiona Brown, a WhatsApp message dated June 7, 2019. Now, remember, the lady you're looking here has been treated as if she's an impossible employer and Linda Reynolds, and they were sued. The government was sued by Higgins and co. They were sued for money. And in a one-day hearing, one-day hearing, when Linda Reynolds was banned from attending, one-day hearing, confidential, reportedly $3 million, our money, goes to Higgins for the appalling treatment by Michaelia Cash and Linda Reynolds. But in a message dated June 7, a WhatsApp message, 2019, from Brittany Higgins to Fiona Brown, Linda Reynolds' chief of staff says, quote, thank you. I wanted to say this in person, but I cannot overstate how much I value your support and advice. You have been absolutely incredible, and I'm so appreciative. So Higgins was well supported by employers in the Morrison government, but this program, The Project, which went to air in February 2021, showed the viewer Higgins' claims that she felt she'd been poorly treated, she'd been isolated, she'd not been given choice about where to be based in the wake of her allegations. Michaelia Cash speaking to Alan Jones here on ADH TV earlier this week. As I said last week, we need a royal commission into all of this. It's no good having an inquiry into one little bit of it in the ACT over here and then having a, a complaint over here into the new National Corruption Commission confusing everyone to death. No, this needs an organised, structured inquiry. But we won't get one because it could put the government at risk. Peter Dutton needs to act like a hound dog on this one and not give up, be relentless. It's fair to say that this could have turned the election if we'd known about it all beforehand. And by the way, the fact that Katie Gallagher is still a minister in our government after this week astounds me. But then nothing really shocks me anymore about our pollies. Penny Wong's behaviour also needs looking into, as does what Elbow knew and when. In summary, it's emerged that Wong and Gallagher knew about Britney's allegations earlier than they said they did. Gallagher has admitted this, which means that their whole routine in that Senate committee hearing in 2021 when Linda Reynolds raised the matter and they went, oh, how dare you? Oh, how could you possibly? Oh, goodness me, shame on you. That was all for show. This is why I'm a classical liberal. The only solution to politicians' bad behaviour is fewer politicians and fewer bureaucrats too while we're at it. We need smaller government. Government in this country has become an absolute monster. And now Albo wants to add thousands more public servants. Give us a break. Anyway, just when you thought the circus couldn't get any more circusy, Liberal Senator David Van was making a statement about the hypocrisy of Finance Minister Katie Gallagher's how dare you comment back in 2021. He was reading his statement in the Senate on Wednesday when this happened. Senator Reynolds and throw mud across the chamber while claiming in 
indemnity and innocence. Senator Thorpe, please, please, Senator Thorpe. Senator Thorpe, Senator Thorpe, please. Senator Thorpe, I've called you to order. Please be at order. Withdraw that comment, please. Well, I didn't. I didn't hear the comment, but Senator Thorpe, if, please just withdraw. Senator Thorpe, Senator Thorpe, please withdraw. It Senator is Thorpe is not assisting. Senator Thorpe, I'll ask you to withdraw. To consider withdrawing that. Thank you. The discourse in this chamber and elevate how we treat each other. Transparency, honesty. Order, Senator Thorpe. Uh, relay that I'm feeling really uncomfortable when a perpetrator is speaking about violence. Thorpe, that's, inappropriate, that's inappropriate and reflected poorly in the member. And I have to ask you to withdraw that. I can't because this person. Senator Thorpe, I, I would just warn you at this point. At this point, sexually this, assaulted that, 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 me. Senator, Senator Thorpe. And the Prime Minister had to remove him from his office. Senator and to Thorpe. have him talking about this today is an absolute disgrace. I have to, uh, Senator Thorpe, I have to call you to order. I'm going to refer, have to refer that to the President, I think. I'm going to refer it to the President. Uh, rather than. I'm just looking at the leaders. I'm, my, my course of action is to refer it to the President. Senator Van, please continue with your contribution. I utterly reject that statement, that disgusting statement, outright. It is just a lie, and I reject it. Sorry, I Senator Van. Sorry, I withdraw the word lie. It's just not true. Senator Van denied the allegation immediately and later said he'd contacted his lawyers. He described Thorpe's allegations on Wednesday as outrageous and reprehensible and accused Thorpe of using parliamentary privilege in the most malicious and despicable way. My lawyers have written to her already making my position clear in the strongest possible terms, he said. But then the following day, Thursday, this. Yesterday I made remarks in relation to another senator. I then had to withdraw them because the rules of the Senate do not allow you to speak about someone's character, only about something they have said. So today I will speak about my experience in Parliament. I experienced sexual comments and was inappropriately propositioned by powerful men. One man followed me and cornered me in a stairwell and most of this was witnessed by staff and fellow members of parliament. No one witnessed what happened in the stairwell as there are no cameras in stairwells. I know there are others that have experienced similar things and have not come forward in the interests of their careers and fear they would be presented to the world by the media in the same way that I have been today. It just never ends. What goes on in that place and what sort of workplace is it? I'm no fan of Lydia Thorpe, but seriously, here we go again. There are different understandings of what amounts to sexual assault. What I experienced was being followed, aggressively propositioned and inappropriately touched. I was afraid to walk out of the office door. I would open the door slightly and check the coast was clear before stepping out. 
it was to the degree that I had to be accompanied by someone whenever I walked inside this building. To me, it was sexual assault, and the government at the time recognised it as such. At the time, I spoke to the President of the Senate about it. I spoke to my colleagues about it. I spoke to the Sex Discrimination, Sex Discrimination Commissioner Kate Jenkins about it. Senator Thorpe then said she didn't make the incident public at the time because it was the same time as Brittany Higgins' accusations were made public. I did not make the incident public at the time because it was during the time Brittany Higgins had made her experience in this building public. I did not want to have anything taken away from Brittany's experience and her bravery in coming forward. I believe that was the right decision. My faith in the Liberal Party was not the right decision. Until yesterday, I thought they had taken this matter seriously. But then yesterday, I had to listen to a senator who has made me feel unsafe, speak on how important it is to keep women safe in Parliament. Silence is violence. And yesterday, I could not stay silent. As someone who has knowingly made me feel unsafe, had the gall to stand up in front of Parliament and preach about protecting women. There's obviously a culture problem. Not good how it's being politicised though. I just wonder if these politicians actually spend any time running the country. Maybe we should scrap the whole system and start again, honestly. Anyway, Senator Thorpe says she's not going to go to the police. I will not pursue legal action against the Sen Senator I will not go to the police. This is my choice. But I will continue to speak out against the abuse and, uh, and harassment that happens in this building. That is my choice. I want to focus on making this place safe for everyone. And at this moment, it is not a safe place for women. And I call on the government to immediately increase the number of security guards in the building and cameras in the corridors and to consult women who work here on what measures and can and should be taken. I send my love and solidarity to all women, girls and gender diverse people out there who experience the many different forms of sexual violence. And to all those survivors, we must continue to stand strong, stand together, and never be silenced. Now, after that statement, Pauline Hanson muttered something under her breath in the Senate that wasn't audible, and Thorpe responded, F off, Pauline. Then, just when you might have had your sceptical hat on, opposition leader Peter Dutton revealed that more allegations had emerged about Liberal Senator David Vann, and announced he will no longer be allowed to sit with the Liberal Party. Uh, since the airing of uh, Senator Thorpe's allegation yesterday, uh, further allegations in relation to Senator Van have been brought to my attention overnight and this morning. As such, I met with Senator Van this morning and a short time ago, I advised Senator Van uh, of my decision that he should no longer sit in the Liberal Party party room. At the outset, I want to make clear, uh, very clear, that I'm not making any judgment on the veracity of allegations 
or any individual's guilt or innocence. Make that uh, very clear. Um, obviously, there's an independent process with the PWSS, uh, the Parliamentary Workplace Support Service, to uh, get underway. On my instruction, my office last night uh, and again today has spoken with the PWSS, and they will conduct uh, their uh, considerations uh, of these matters. Um, in relation to uh, the movement of officers, uh, uh, Senator Thorpe made uh, uh, the allegation yesterday in the Senate. Um, I wasn't aware of the detail of Senator Van moving office, but I've conducted inquiries in relation to that matter overnight. Um, I've advised that the action uh, at the time that was taken was uh, to the satisfaction of both Senator Thorpe and uh, the Green Senate leadership team. Um, and I'll leave my statement there. Thank Did you very you much. Thank you. The details of those allegations emerged later in the day as former Liberal Senator Amanda Stoker revealed that she'd been groped by Senator Van at an event a few years back. She says he squeezed her bottom twice, uninvited. Honestly, these guys are shabby, aren't they? I mean, keep your hands to yourself and the little guy zipped up. It's not that difficult, really. It's hard to know what's real and what's politics. I get that. Senator Thorpe was uh, on the radio blabbing about how it wasn't until the white girl said something that anyone paid attention. Yeah, nah. People weren't listening to you, Lydia, because you don't have much credibility. Something all of your own doing that has nothing to do with the color of your skin. Don't go playing the race card if you think this matter needs to be taken seriously. That's truly despicable. Honestly, the culture today sucks. And while I fully believe Amanda Stoker 100%, and I have no reason to not believe Senator Thorpe's claims, and David Van needs to have his chance to respond and be properly investigated, isn't the timing of these revelations all just so perfect for Katie Gallagher, Penny Wong and Elbow? No, I'm just being too cynical. Forget I said that. Anyway, both major parties are up to their necks in it, and we really need a new political force in this country. With all the stuff going on in Canberra the past two weeks, we haven't had much time to talk about Ben Robert Smith and the SAS. Ben Robert Smith is entitled to something that we don't do enough of in Australia these days. That's giving a person accused of a crime the presumption of innocence. The reality is that despite the findings of the defamation case, Ben Robert Smith has never been criminally charged and maintains he has committed no crime. He has been investigated for five years, that we know of, and this week two investigations were abandoned because of fears that evidence that they relied upon had been tainted. The two investigations were into incidents in Afghanistan that we've heard a bit about. The first alleges that the two Afghani men, sorry, that two Afghani men were found hiding in a secret tunnel in a bombed compound in the central Afghanistan village of Karkarak. Robert Smith is said to have ordered another more junior soldier to shoot one of the men in order to blood the new guy. The other local is reported to have been shot by Robert Smith himself. Both acts would likely amount to war crimes if charges were brought and proven. The other incident occurred in the village of Darwan, further south in Afghanistan, in 2012. Robert Smith is said to have participated in the death of an Afghan man after kicking him down what is described as a small cliff. And he's then implicated in the man's shooting death. So that's the background. 
It's important that we on the outside of this don't decide a verdict in our heads. The judicial process must be allowed to take its course. No one, including the soldiers of the Special Air Service Regiment, current and former, want murderers or war criminals in their ranks. Full stop. These are tough individuals who've worked damned hard to earn their Sandy Beret, the distinctive headdress of the SAS Regiment. They don't want it dishonoured with criminal acts. If anyone is found guilty in a fair and transparent process, then the convicted party should suffer the consequences. But we are not there yet. We are a long way from it. There are allegations that are not proven, and a five-year investigation into two serious claims has just pretty much fallen apart. But secondly, we need to stop dead in its tracks this propensity for conviction by media. We see the constant public campaigns to achieve convictions in the public mind before any charges have been laid in courts. Sometimes you ha have to stand someone down or remove a minister while an investigation is carried out. That doesn't mean they're guilty. Kathleen Folbig spent 20 years in jail after a media frenzy surrounding her case. And she's free because of new scientific discoveries. And we can go further back to the conviction of Lindy Chamberlain in the early 1980s following one of the most spectacular trials in Australian history, only to have her freed after evidence emerged to corroborate her version of events. But this mob rule pitchfork justice seems to be the new modus operandi in Australia. Use a PR campaign to sway public opinion of a person's guilt before a trial, because it's much harder to convince people after their mind is made up that their initial conclusions were wrong. We're not going to litigate the case for or against Robert Smith here. What we will say is that Australia asks these men and women to volunteer to be sent to far off lands to fight in wars on our behalf. The SAS Regiment is the best of the best, up with the best special forces operators in the world. But they are still only human. In Afghanistan, every local was potentially out to kill you and as many of your mates as possible. In the stressful and split-second world of combat operations, decisions are made that we from the safety of our lounge rooms can second guess, but we weren't there. When you've had to pick up the pieces of your mates and put them into bags for collection, seal their sucking chest wounds with bandages, kill or be killed by the kid who just rode up on a motorbike carrying an improvised explosive device, being given a list of suspected terrorists to kill or capture, and they would rather die trying to kill you than be captured. That can change your perspective on life. Ben Robert Smith and the men and women who served with him saw, suffered and had to do terrible things that the rest of us simply could not imagine. He at least is entitled to the presumption of innocence until he faces any charges that may come in court and is appropriately convicted. Up till now, there are no charges. No prosecutor has had confidence that they could gain a conviction after at least five years of investigations. The standard of proof for a civil case, like a defamation trial, is much lower than for a criminal one. All you have to prove in a defamation case is that on the balance of probabilities, 
the allegations are true. No charges have ever been laid. As of today, Ben Robert Smith is an innocent man. And it's wrong for our media to now be brazenly calling him a murderer on the basis of the findings of a civil case. To the United States now, and many skeptics are saying that the latest attempt to get Trump is underway. Those who would weaponize the criminal justice system for political gain are hoping that at long last, after so many previous failed attempts, that this might be the thing that finally stops the evil orange man. I don't think so. He's 30 percentage points ahead of his nearest contender for the Republican nomination. And the polls now show that if he does become the nominee, he'll beat Biden in November next year. But never has so much been done by so many to crush a current or former president in America. It's a very sad state of affairs for Australia's most important ally and the country that's supposed to be a beacon to the world of what can come of liberty and democracy at its best. It fascinates me that the very same people who cry that Trump put at risk the conventions and institutions of American justice and its political systems and good governance continue to be the ones doing the most damage to all conventions and institutions. In the light of what we know about Joe Biden's family's potentially questionable activities, and in light of how trivial the matters in this case against Trump appear to be, it's hard, even if you detest Donald Trump, to see this as anything but opportunistic political use of the criminal justice system. Something we're seeing all too much of lately, and not just in America. Here's how ABC News America reported on Trump's court appearance in Florida on Wednesday morning, Australian time. Former president in court today facing criminal charges from the very government he was once elected to lead. Today, Trump entered a plea of not guilty to a sprawling 37 count criminal indictment traveling to the Miami courthouse alone this afternoon. Trump was seen waving out of the car window. The former president was fingerprinted, but no mugshot was taken. Then for the first time, Trump came face to face with special counsel Jack Smith. Magistrate Judge Jonathan Goodman, who oversaw the hearing, ordered Trump not to discuss the case with any witnesses. Outside of the court, there was a festive atmosphere. Most of the hundreds who showed up were there to support Trump, while others were there in protest. Trump calls it a witch hunt, more of a persecution than a prosecution. He faces decades in prison if convicted. The former U.S. Attorney General William Barr says the case against Trump is, quote, very, very damning and if even half of it is true, he is toast. So what are the charges? ABC America's legal contributor, former FBI agent Asha Rangappa, says it's a strong case against the former president. So on the Espionage, uh, Espionage Act charges, uh, the 31 documents that are each one count uh, for each document that's in there, you know, that has to be national defense information. That is a part of the violation to willfully retain that and not give it up when an official comes and asks for it. And we see that this is clearly national defense information. It's nuclear secrets. It's our military strategy. So I think that part they definitely had down. On the obstruction and false statements, they have very hard evidence. They have audio tapes. They have text messages. They have photographs that will all come to, you know, going to the intent to conceal and prevent the FBI from getting this. This really gets to the heart of the obstruction because the hardest element to prove there is the intent. And here you have it in words and recordings. Now, there's no doubt these documents had sensitive contents. 
The question is, were they seriously at risk of being found or leaked? What malicious intent might Trump have had in having these documents? He has Secret Service agents around him at all times. How come they didn't pick it up if it was such a risk? What was the motive here? A former president has never been charged like this before. What did other former presidents have in their garages? In fact, what did the current former president have in his garage? The most secret, and sorry, the most serious charge here is the claim that Trump tried to hide the documents from the authorities and conspired with his lawyer to do so. If they're going to get him on something, that'll be it. And that's the bit that has some Republicans thinking this might be the case that finally brings Trump down. But I wouldn't bet on it. Senior Republicans, especially those running against Trump to be the Republican Party's candidate for the next election, are starting to distance themselves from Trump and are saying this is a serious matter. Trump's detractors always seem to forget that the former president remains hugely popular. He is by far the frontrunner for this race to be the Republican nominee, and he still has the support of roughly half the country. A state of affairs that, no matter the legal details here, suggests that America is in for a lot more division and anguish in the years ahead. Here's how America's more conservative-leaning media saw things. Former President Trump reacting for the first time just moments ago after pleading not guilty to 37 counts relating to his handling of classified documents. Watch here. How did it go? I think it's going great. Okay, I think it's a rigged deal here. We have a rigged country. We have a country that's corrupt. We have a country that's got no borders. We have a country that's got nothing but problems. We're a nation in decline. And then they do this stuff. And you see where the people are. We love the people. And you see where they are. You see the crowds and everything else. We have a country that is in decline like never before. And we can't let it happen. I think it was a sad day for America. I really do. I think that, you know, if, if you kind of look at it from 30,000 feet, you have the most popular candidate running for president in the United States, a former president himself, being indicted by a special counsel uh, that works under the indictment and under the administration and needs the approval of the attorney general for to get this indictment. Uh, which administration's president wants to run against this now defendant in a serious uh, criminal case. Yep, you can't separate the politics out from this one, that's for sure. That's Judge Janine Pirro on Fox News' The Five show. But let's say this isn't political. Let's say it was any other president at any other time. There is no evidence, no one saying, in spite of the fact that they got the narrative out there before the indictment was even unsealed, we knew everything that was going on before it was unsealed, before the defendant was arraigned. We had this narrative. We found out how many top secret, secret, confidential, et cetera, et cetera. And yet there is no indication that there was any harm. Harm is an essential element to the crime of espionage. I want to say that again. Harm is an essential element to the crime of espionage. Otherwise, you're dealing with the Presidential Records Act, which was created in 78 because Johnson and the rest of them couldn't figure out what was a presidential record and what wasn't. And this is now the criminalization. It was because Nixon had all the boxes <laughs> loaded up and uh, Johnson or um, Ford was like, uh, is that allowed? I don't know if that should be allowed. And so they yeah, passed you're a law. Right, right. So they passed the law and they figured it out. So there's no espionage issue here, according to Judge Janine. So that leaves the Presidential Records Act. Did he break those rules? Well, 
Previous presidents have taken documents home, like Bill Clinton. As Fox's Jesse Waters pointed out, there's a precedent. Now, here's the act. This is an Obama judge, by the way. The quote, under the statutory scheme established by the Presidential Records Act, the decision to segregate personal materials from presidential records is made by the president at his sole discretion. Let me finish. When Bill Clinton took these records from the White House back to Chappaqua, the act itself of taking them home to his home made them personal records. It says there's no provision in the act that even permits the archivist to assume control over anything that's personal. And if he did have a decent legal team, they would have just squashed the subpoena immediately with the Presidential Records Act, and you're going to hear it litigated in federal court in Miami. So don't act like this is some sort of slam-dunk case. You'll probably lose. You'll probably appeal. It'll go to the Supreme Court, and there is no way in hell the Supreme Court is going to uphold a conviction of a former president, possibly current president, over where a piece of paper goes. It's not there's no dead bodies, there's no bribes, there's nothing. So I knock it off. Again, there's nothing, yet still they persist. Why? Do they not realize that every time they throw this legalistic nonsense at Trump, they make him stronger? They still don't get it. People don't want this over-regulation. They want a country with vision and progress, not one mired in petty bureaucracy run by Karens and Darrens running around waving their finger at everyone going, oh, but you broke one of my little rules. And every time they try to get Trump on a technicality, it just proves that point. And it makes his case for him. And his popularity goes up, not down. As Greg Gutfield pointed out on The Five on Wednesday, there's no real there there. I just want someone to look at me the way the sketch artist looked at Donald <laughs> Trump. <you>. Yeah. <laughs> I am, We'd all I, be a lot thinner. I would look amazing with that sketch artist. Look, the big question really is motive. The obvious answer, there wasn't one, right? right? Carelessness or ignorance isn't a motive. It could be unlawful, violation of a process, but the idea that he had this intent to commit treason is obviously a political line of thinking. The bottom line is you just can't indict over carelessness, a president, even if you can. You may be able to do it, but you shouldn't. And I get it. Politics dictates that you should destroy people. But patriotism would say, don't destroy a president. You know, move on, get on with your life. If this indictment had caused some kind of damage, I mean, if the crimes that they're indicting him on had caused some damage or some injury, I get it, but it didn't. So this punishment is for a different crime. And that crime is being Donald Trump. That's commentator and host Greg Gutfield on the American Fox cable news channel show, The Five. It's unlikely the trial will finish before the presidential election next November. They need special attorneys who can have access to and know how to manage the law around classified documents. So it's going to be another great distraction from the main issues of the day for the most important country in the Western democratic world. Now, speaking of distractions, Australia is seeking to grow business and trade ties with India as it surpasses China as the world's most populated country. India has a rich and long history of its own, but there are similarities with Australia in its more recent history. It's a democracy and a former British colony, 
and English is a native language among the educated and business classes. But while China now may be number two by population, its economy is four times the size of India's. In recent decades, China had an average 10% year growth rate. That slowed down recently, but a report from the management consultancy McKinsey says even at this lower growth rate, it's still ahead of most Western countries. And even if the Chinese market grows at only 2% per year between now and 2030, that will still add the equivalent of India's entire GDP today to China's GDP. If it grows at 5% a year, which is also quite likely, McKinsey says that China would be adding the GDP equivalent of India, Indonesia and Japan altogether. People keep saying, what will be the next China globally? And the answer is China. Which kind of sucks if you like the idea that the best form of government for economic prosperity is liberal democracy. But let's remember China's growth is still dependent upon free market capitalist principles and prosperity will only be enhanced by more market liberalization and freedom, not less. Let's hope Beijing starts to realize that soon. So what does all this have to do with us as Australians? Like it or not, we have been delegated by the world's business community to the Asia Pacific region. And China is the biggest economy in our region. It may not be as rich as we are on a per person basis, but its population is 50, five zero times our population. And its economy is 10 times the size of Australia's. And remember, it's growing. The World Bank says more than 93 cities in China are projected to become high income by 2030. 93 cities. Let that sink in. So what's our plan? My interview with the CEO of Freelancer.com, Matt Bar Barry, this week was a wake-up call to Australia and Australians that we better totally change the way we're operating and thinking if we want any kind of future at all that looks anything like our past. I, I think it's a bit of a crisis, actually. I mean, Albo's chosen to take a, the path of let's distract you with everything that, other than the important things that matter. Um, and I think, I think the, and now he's just gone full Burko on, like, let's just flood the country with people and just hope that we can kick the can down the road long enough. Um, but I think it's a real problem. I think it's a problem on both sides. I, I think the Liberal Party oh, totally. had a crisis and, and in terms of leadership, and that's why it got voted out. Um, and I, and I, think, I think the, 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 the Labor Party has a, has a problem, and I don't really see any good uh, people in the political stock in this country <laughs> at all, to tell you the truth. Well, we're not getting the talent through, that's for sure. We talk about that quite a lot on this show, but um, it seems that uh, the populace, I mean, people generally, uh, with the exception of the people who watch, uh, watch ADH TV probably, uh, don't seem to understand the economic implications of their voting. Uh, they don't seem to, because they're not feeling it immediately. And so what we're doing is we're rewarding short termism in government and short term thinking uh, so that governments are just looking to the next election and making sure everybody's happy and we kick the can down the road three years. Well, that'll get us reelected. Then we'll kick it down another three years. Nobody's doing what, you know, less democratic places like Singapore do and say, well, let's look at our 20 year plan or China. We'll look at our 50 year plan. Um, and, and I'm not supporting, you know, undemocratic or, or authoritarian uh, uh, regimes, but it does beg the question, how with the current system we've got, do we get long-term thinkers and reward long-term thinking if the public 
don't value that and don't reward that, don't reward the politicians that do that? I mean, that's a great question. I mean, let's look at this. There's two parts to that. One is if you look at the populist side of voting in Australia, I mean, the Teals are a classic example of that. I mean, that was a bit of a protest vote against the Liberal Party, where ostensibly quite a large demographic of the Liberal vote went to the Teals. I mean, that vote, that basically their policy is something, 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 climate change and nothing else, Mm. right? There's nothing about foreign policy. There's nothing about the economy or technology or anything like that. It's a zero, right? It's just basically a protest vote and I want to feel good about myself, so let's vote Teal for climate change and there's nothing else. You think about Singapore and forward thinking. I mean, Singapore um, have invested a billion dollars in AI, right? And AI, let me tell you, uh, is a major... um, uh, The the, the, the change that's going to happen in the next 12 months thanks to artificial intelligence will be greater, I believe, than the impact of the commercial internet in 1994, 95. In 1994... The geeks had email addresses because 1991 was the year that turned on the universities. By 94, the geeks had email addresses everywhere. And 95 was the year your grandmother had an email address, right? And yeah. you think about how big the impact of the internet has been. AI is going to have a much, much bigger impact than that. There's been a re- massive breakthrough really in the last six to 12 months in, in artificial intelligence where they've figured out effectively how to train software to do human jobs based on large training data sets. And the larger the training data set, the more intelligent and the better that the, this AI gets. Um, there's currently a, a thing out from Goldman saying that 300 million people in white collar jobs around the world are gonna lose them thanks to AI in the next couple of years. And 25% of, of, of jobs in Australia are potentially impacted as a result of AI. That's freelancer.com CEO Matt Barry on the other side interviews this week, our Tuesday night show. That full interview is, of course, available for you on demand. So what is Australia's plan? Well, we can start with schools. Computer coding and Mandarin should be the second and third languages taught from grade one. As much of an affront as that might sound to passionately nationalistic Aussies, proud of our Judeo-Christian and Greco-Roman European history, The only way we're going to have power in our region in the future is through education in the right areas, language and cultural understanding of our region, mathematics and the sciences, specifically in information technology and AI. And most of all, where we are failing big time right now, economics. I'm sorry, no more taxpayer funded gender studies or social not really sciences. Secondly, we need vision. We need to become the European center of Asia. That's not racist. It's leveraging our heritage and our unique position in history and geography, our unique selling proposition, our differentiator, as I'd say in marketing terms. It's what Hong Kong could have done if Beijing had had more vision to achieve this. We need a Euro-American centric immigration policy built around Euro-American multinational companies already operating in or aspiring to operate in the Asia-Pacific region. We need to become the platform for the Western world doing business in Asia. This means we need radical visionaries as leaders. And boy, are we a long way from that. We need Northern Australian cities close to Asia, Darwin, Broome and Cairns, to become major centres connected to Asia for growth, populated by Australian, American and European multinational corporations and their staff of all backgrounds, with huge airports and ports to support regional engagement. 
Does that sound like a big call? Three new big cities? Whoa, that's demo. You've gone nuts. You're crazy. Well, remember this. China has 160 cities with populations bigger than Adelaide and Perth. Let that sink in. 160 cities bigger than Adelaide and Perth and 16 cities bigger than Melbourne and Sydney. We're so far from this kind of visionary mindset in our governments that I sadly personally don't think we would be able to do it. To achieve this, we need to completely reverse our thinking around three areas of national distraction and toxic ideologies that are holding us back right now. Three things we must speak of far less while we turn our attention to the real news that matters. Number one, net zero. Forget it. Leave that to the big countries that can actually have an impact. The idea Australia can have any impact on carbon and the climate while China and India grow at lightning speed is simply a self-indulgent total delusion used by left-wing political parties like Labor and the Greens for political power. So we just need to shut up about it. We need energy and we need lots of it. Sure, keep innovating new technology, but let the market do its thing and put our focus elsewhere, like ensuring our energy security for the future. We need nuclear power yesterday. And we need to stop listening to Greens and environmentalists for about the next 20 years, period. It's absurd and indulgent spoiled brat thinking to believe that while China builds 100 coal-fired powered stations a year, that's two new ones every week, that shooting ourselves in the foot by closing one or two down is going to have any effect on anything to do with global warming. Who the hell do we think we are? And why are we letting teenagers and boomer grandparents who want to be popular with the grandkids by source sounding all green set the agenda for our nation's energy policy and security? Number two thing that we need to do a 180 on, the voice and racism more generally. We are not a racist country. We're one of the most welcoming, fair, multicultural countries on earth and probably the most in the Asia Pacific region. And why are we so non-racist? Because of Western European liberalism and thought. As a national community, we look after the descendants of our early indigenous people very, very well already. With taxpayers already sharing the wealth to the tune of spending on indigenous Aussies, that's 1.5 to two times per person what we spend on non-indigenous Aussies. It's freedom and liberty and democracy that is under threat here. And we need to defend that now. So we need to decide, do we value our British and European heritage or do we not? As European Australians, do we want to be the European centre of Asia? Is that our role in history that we should be leveraging? I think so. As Asian, South Asian or Middle Eastern Australians, do we see the opportunity that this presents for us to leverage all the European things that we and our ancestors came to Australia for, to take that back to the lands of our ancestors and be a beacon and champion for the rule of law and liberal democracy and the collective prosperity that comes from free economic systems for the Asia Pacific region. As an Aboriginal Australian descendant, 
Are we ready to be grateful and thankful for what the Europeans brought to this land and stop talking about things that happened to our ancestors and nonsense ideologies of the past that will not help our children into the future or even in the present? Again, this is all self-indulgent garbage that we cannot afford. We have bigger fish to fry and much bigger challenges ahead of us. The number three thing we need to reverse our thinking on, sexism, the Me Too movement and gender ideology. We are not a sexist nation. Parliament House is just one workplace. And we do not have a discrimination problem against people of different sexualities. We are one of the most open-minded liberal countries on earth when it comes to this stuff. These current obsessions over the minutiae of gender politics are again the narcissistic indulgences of a rich, spoilt people. 93 cities, 93 cities in China projected to become high income by 2030, according to the World Bank. That's less than seven years. Two coal-fired power stations per week. And what are we spending our time focused on? Contested science on the impact of historically high carbon levels on the climate, whether we should throw even more money and representation to a group of people in our community that already have a significant slice of both and are greatly respected, and whether or not a couple of junior staffers had consensual sex one night or not in a Parliament House office. If we spend as little time as possible thinking about that stuff and more pondering the things that matter, like what our vision for our nation is for the next 20 to 50 years, we'd be far better off. Like, are we really going to be the lucky country forever? Or are we actually the stupid, self-indulgent teenage brat of planet Earth about to get the spanking of its short, spoilt life? I'm not sure I have any friends left now. Last week, we kicked off the show with uh, some news about a big research breakthrough that could help the world's understanding of long COVID and other post-viral syndromes that affect people's neurological systems. Researchers at the University of Queensland have discovered that viruses like the one that causes COVID, SARS-CoV-2, can cause brain cells to fuse together, initiating malfunctions that can lead to chronic neurological symptoms. The Queensland Brain Institute's researchers found that, quote, after neuronal infection with SARS-CoV-2, the spike S protein becomes present in neurons, and once neurons fuse, they don't die, they either start firing synchronously or they stop functioning altogether, unquote. The obvious question I know a lot of you might have been thinking when you heard about this was, well, if the spike protein from the COVID SARS-CoV-2 virus can do that to the brain, what could the spike protein from the vaccine do to the brain? So I put this question to the Institute and promised to report to you their answer this week. Professor Massimo Hilliard very kindly replied to us to let us know that, quote, as part of our study, we also found the spike S protein encoded by mRNA vaccines does not cause fusion of neurons. So it's just the S spike protein in the actual SARS-CoV-2 virus itself that does that, not the vaccine. Phew. Let's face it, mRNA vaccine technology doesn't really need any more bad publicity. The prominent critic of mRNA vaccines who just finished a speaking tour of Australia, British cardiologist Dr. Asim Malhotra, 
says the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines should be suspended pending an inquiry into emerging safety evidence. He told News.com that prior vaccines have been pulled for much less and alleged that Australia's Therapeutic Goods Administration had been involved in a cover-up of adverse event data. But a leading Australian cardiologist hit back this week, telling the news site that there's no link to cardiac deaths. Professor Jason Kovacic is the executive director of the Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute and a practicing clinical cardiologist at St Vincent's in Sydney. There's a lot of information out there, he told news. Some is good and reputable and some is not so reputable. And I think it's very confusing to the public to have all these people saying different things. Okay, now look, if you want to criticize what someone has to say, then criticize it. But don't do the ad hominem thing. That's the Latin term, ad hominem, that basically means playing the man instead of the ball, attacking the speaker or the source instead of their argument. It's a very poor debate tactic used constantly by people when they don't have a good argument. Just get on Twitter and you'll see it all the time. Dr. Malhotra is a highly respected cardiologist and he was very high profile long before COVID came along. So let's not question whether he's reputable. The next part of Professor Kovacic's uh, retort said that, quote, I think it's very confusing to the public to have all of these people saying different things. Now this really annoys me. And I think it cuts to the heart of what's wrong with a lot of Australia's public health information and debate these days. It's patronizing, it's condescending, and it reeks of nanny state self-righteousness among bureaucrats. Oh, it's very confusing to the poor widow public. So we smart doctors better step in and look after them. No, tough. Life is confusing and we can handle it. Thank you, we're adults. Stop treating the public like children. We don't need you gatekeeping our information. We can work it out for ourselves, thanks. Come out and slap down the arguments and slap down the information of people who are saying things you disagree with if you like. That's all part of a good, rich, scientific, public debate among experts. But in a liberal democracy, we get to make our own minds up and we get to be wrong and we get to make mistakes and own the consequences like adults. So don't attack the people you disagree with with personal slander on their reputation and please don't say the public can't handle all this complex information. Censorship is not the answer. We are not stupid and we can sort out the BS from reality. And we can also cope with the idea that science isn't settled on a lot of things and risks do exist and unknowns do exist. You know, it might do some of the experts in our health bureaucracy and institutions and some of our esteemed doctors to remind themselves of that scientific truism from time to time. If you just treated us like adults from the start and told us what you don't know, then you wouldn't have to defend a possibly risky vaccine. But when you virtually mandate a thing and force people to take it, then you own the consequences. You can't have it both ways. Now, Professor Jason Kovacic is the executive director of the Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute and a practicing clinical cardiologist at St. Vincent's in Sydney. So he obviously is also reputable. So what did he tell news.com of actual substance? He said, incidents of myocarditis and pericarditis, that's inflammation of the heart or inflammation of the lining around the heart, 
from the mRNA vaccines had been, quote, widely and openly reported. Myocarditis is reported to be, to, sorry, is reported in one to two out of every 100,000 people who get the Pfizer or Moderna jabs. But young men and boys are more at risk. Professor Kovacic told the news site that, I've got a couple of cases of possible mRNA vaccine-related myocarditis, males, fairly young, who came in with some mild to moderate chest pain. They were very mild and they went home within 48 hours from hospital and they've been fine since. Okay, great. He went on to say, I have many more patients that have myocarditis related to COVID and some of them are still struggling. Nationwide, there's been one of two reports of severe myocarditis from mRNA vaccines and one death. But it's out there in the public domain. Nobody is hiding anything. Professor Kovacic said the data in a study by Dr. Elizabeth Paratz from Melbourne's Baker Heart Institute, Heart and Diabetes Institute, which was published in the journal Circulation earlier this year, showed the vaccination rollout was not associated with any increase in cardiac arrests in Victoria and was, quote, very, very clear. Bearing in mind that during that period there were millions of people getting vaccinated in Victoria, I think this paper is really telling. It's a well-conducted study that really does prove convincingly that there's no link. Professor Kovacic did not deny there were genuine vaccine industry injuries, but he maintained that the benefits far outweigh the risks. Great. That's your professional, expert, educated view, and you are absolutely entitled to it, and so is Dr. Malhotra to his. You see how this works? Professor Kovacic went on to tell news.com that, quote, I fully appreciate and recognise that some people in good faith adhered to mandates, got a vaccination and had a complication. However, as a healthcare provider, I can see the need for the greater good of society. Well, that's nice, but I must strongly disagree that the greater good you claim gives you the right to mandate vaccines or medicines. People have very different views about individual rights and collective responsibility. And something as serious as mandating a new, relatively untested vaccine is not a decision that should be made only by medics and health bureaucrats. Everyone must get a say, and everyone has a right to hear other expert opinions too. And Professor Kovacic, you have an open invitation to come on this show anytime you like to put your expert point of view, sir. Well, that's all for this week. I need another whiskey now. We'll catch you next Friday for The Other Side Australia. And on Tuesday night, remember The Other Side Interviews, streaming at 6pm and available on demand at any time thereafter, as always. And don't forget this show, The Other Side Australia, your weekly short circuit summary of the news and commentary of the week, streamed every Friday night at 8pm for the weekend. And if you like the show, remember our saying, don't just like it, share it. The independent media needs your active support to keep on doing what we're doing. And thanks to all of you who have been sharing widely. We've been really uh, getting fantastic response to our, our clips and our social media content. And we've had newspapers picking stuff up this week. It's been fantastic. So thank you very much, everybody. Keep doing it. Uh, we really can change the nature of media in Australia. Have a great week and we'll catch you soon.